0: Amen. Thank you for that. It's been a long time since we've heard that. Very appreciative of that good message. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to the passage that we read together earlier out of the third chapter of the Gospel of John. Lord willing, tonight we're going to be taking up a portion of the Pilgrim's Progress reading for the week. And if you haven't been able to do all of it, it might be that this afternoon that you could read the portion of it that we'll be discussing tonight, and that portion will start with Christian and Hopeful taking this little meandering path out into what Bunyan refers to as by path Meadow, and it's that of course that lands them finally in Doubting Castle, and underneath the heavy oppression of giant despair. I want to discuss that tonight, and if you'll read that this afternoon, if you've not read any of it, that'll put you in a position so that we can get the most from it. I want to do something this morning that we very seldom do, and that is use an extensive PowerPoint for the message this morning in an attempt to make this passage just as clear as possible, and to really set before us the matter that the Lord is conversing with Nicodemus about. I'd like to ask the men to bring up the first of the slides. You may have been watching a football game on occasion, and when one of the teams was preparing to attempt a field goal or an extra point, the camera is focused on the end zone, the uprights are there in the foreground all of a sudden a couple of people jump up and they hold up a huge placard and on it is this word John and then it says 3.16 and maybe you've wondered what are those strange people doing and what's the point of that well they are trying to call people's attention to this verse they obviously are hopeful that those people will recognize that that's a verse from the Bible. And they're evidently trying to urge those people to go home and open a Bible and to look up this verse. The verse is one of the most well-known by people all over the world. For God so loved the world, it begins... Maybe that's why so many people in the world are familiar with the wording, God so loved the world. And the verse goes on to say that he did so love that he sent or he gave his only begotten son. That is Jesus Christ, his eternal son who came and took our flesh. Why did God send his son? He did so so that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Now by the word perish, the Bible isn't talking about dying physically. Even the Lord Jesus Christ himself died physically. It's talking about something that we don't like to talk about. And that even if you're a true Christian, you find yourself hesitating about because it is not considered to be polite to bring this subject up. By perish, the Bible is referring to actually dying eternally. It is referring to perishing in hell. And I do just want to point out that if there actually is such a place and people like you and like me go to that place and we go there everlastingly as the Bible says that some people do. Then it is not impolite to warn people about it. In fact, if you think about it as a parent, if you do not warn your children about a busy street or a dangerous dog or a hot stove you would be an irresponsible, unloving parent. And God really wants us to know the reality of this. But isn't it something that that is expressed within a verse that starts out by assuring us that God so loves us that he sent his son to deliver us from that? That whoever believes in Him, that is in His Son, would not experience that destiny, perishing in hell forever, but would obtain, would have from God, everlasting life. That verse states that the condition, the difference, the one difference between perishing or having everlasting life is believing in the Son of God, believing on Jesus Christ. That is the matter that makes all the difference. It's the great divide. Now what many people are not aware of, but which I'm sure that the people who hold up placards like that in end zones are hoping, is that if folks will look that verse up, that they will notice that it occurs embedded in a conversation. And it's the conversation that we read together this morning. Now there are many, many things that even Jesus himself said when he was on earth that God has not seen fit to record in the Bible. So you could live and die and go to heaven without ever being aware of those conversations. But not this one. This one is imperative. There are many things that you and I don't need to know. But we need to understand this conversation. It's the one that leads to that magnificent verse that we just read. So I want to work us carefully down through the portion, just the first half of the conversation previous to that verse. And it starts out by introducing us to a man whose name we're given, Nicodemus. We are told his position religiously. He is a Pharisee. These were very strict, Bible-observing people. And he had a position among them. He was a ruler among those Jews. And this man came and addressed the Lord Jesus this way. I'm halfway through the verses. Rabbi, which means teacher. We know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now there's a good bit of information in that verse about that man, and it's helpful to us to know that this is not someone out of a completely pagan background. This is a Jewish person, He reads the first 39 books of the Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament. He believes them. He's a ruler among the Jews. He is a Bible-believing religious man. But the most important thing that we're told in those verses about him isn't any of that. The most important thing we're told in those verses is what he thinks about Jesus. And what he says, this is what captures it, we know that you have come from God. Well, actually, he's in the minority. Because what we know from reading about the earthly ministry of Christ and people's response to him is that most people didn't believe that. They thought that he was a prophet. They thought that he did good things particularly when he fed them or performed miracles on their behalf, healed their sick. But there was a great debate about where he was from. A lot of people just said, we don't understand this. He claims to be from God, but we know his father. His father was a carpenter. We know his mother. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. How does he say he came down from heaven? He came from God. How much Nicodemus really understood of that, we don't know. But the point is, he knew enough that he wasn't walking away from Jesus' claims. At a certain level, he was convinced this man had to have come from God. He's stating that persuasion. Now maybe that is you. That's not a lot of people in our world today. And the Bible has answers for them. But this is a conversation between Jesus Christ and somebody like you. Who does believe that Jesus came from God. You're not a total Christ rejecter. And what's interesting then is the way the Lord replies to him. Because Jesus' reply indicates that he understands that there's something deeper that Nicodemus has on his mind. What is it? Look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I'm going to just pause. You know how sometimes people will say, I'm telling you the truth. Or they will say, I swear swear by God. And it's people's way of just underlining the fact, now what I'm saying to you, it isn't that I lie to you all the time, but this time I'm telling you what's truth. But they're trying to underscore, I am, in, I am in blood earnest about what I'm saying right now. And when our Lord would do that, He would use this opening, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus comes and says, we know that you're come from God. That's what he's talking about, Jesus. What does Jesus talk about when he replies? He talks about this, seeing the kingdom of God you know, when you read that in your Bible for the first time, it's like what, what our Lord says in answer doesn't seem to follow what Nicodemus just said. It's like you feel like the two just talked right past each other. But they didn't. Because folks, what is happening here is that Jesus Christ is responding to what he knows is really on Nicodemus' mind. And it isn't that Jesus interrupted him before he got around to saying it. It's that Nicodemus said what he said and evidently just left it hanging. We know that you are come from God for no one could do the signs that you do unless God Be with him. Yes? Folks, the Bible says in that passage that we read earlier that Nicodemus came at night. And he evidently came at night because he did not want to be seen seeking Jesus out. Jesus was rejected by the Pharisees for the most part and rejected by the rulers of the Jews. Nicodemus is definitely in the minority among his peers. And he's not confident about being seen in broad daylight with Jesus. But he has sought him out by night not just in order to say to him we know you came from God but because he has something underneath on his mind that really is disturbing him. But he hasn't said it. And Jesus knows exactly what it is. It's this matter of how you can be certain that you will see the kingdom of God when you die. And there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people in this country that are just like this man. They are not utterly pagan people who don't believe the Bible and don't believe there's a God, and they certainly don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The actuality is they do believe those things. They believe the Bible is a religious book. It came from God. They believe that Jesus Christ in some way has something to do with salvation and heaven. But they don't know exactly how it all fits together. And they never ask anybody. In many cases, they just keep going to church. Like Nicodemus probably went to the temple and perhaps to a synagogue again and again and again. But there's this nagging something in him about this issue, seeing the kingdom of God. And the ministry of Jesus Christ has really prompted him to begin to give serious attention to that question and its answer. And you may be in our service today because something or someone has really caused you to begin to think about that far more deeply than you've ever done before. And what the Lord is saying is there's a condition. And that nobody makes it apart from meeting that condition. What is that condition? Unless, unless one is born again, he can't. Unless one is born again, he cannot even see it. Can you imagine the horror now that many, many people experience when they die? That they go right on to the eternity and there is this glorious, majestic, wonderful kingdom of God where all is peace and love and they don't even ever see it. They just perish. Jesus said there's a condition to even seeing it. And it is this matter of being born again. Now what is he talking about? Well, you understand, I think, What he's talking about, if you follow the rest of the conversation. Because what is very informative, it's enlightening, is what Nicodemus thinks Jesus is talking about. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And, folks, the thing that is so helpful about that is it is apparent that Nicodemus is understanding the Lord to be talking literally. He's understanding that this is not a figure of speech born again. And that therefore what Jesus really means is that you need a fresh start. You need to turn over a new leaf. You need to redouble your efforts to live a good life. You need to get serious about attending church or the synagogue in Jesus' day. Nicodemus understands that Jesus is talking, at least he thinks he is, Nicodemus thinks Jesus is talking about a literal birth. He's literally entering a second time into his mother's womb and being born. Jesus said, born again, Nicodemus is taking that to mean a second time born out of your mother's womb. And was that what Jesus is talking about? Was he talking literally? Here's our Lord's response on that. Again, truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot, now he uses the word enter, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And now he he adds this to help our understanding, Nicodemus' understanding, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, which is what he would have been talking about, about born of water. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Folks, you can see that in Jesus' response, he actually does talk about a birth and a second one. But what he's clarifying is the second one isn't like the first one. The first one is flesh born of flesh. The second one is a real birth. In that sense, it's like the first one. But it's not the same in its nature. It's this the Spirit, born of the Spirit. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. That there is such a thing as being born of God's Holy Spirit, and it's literal. This isn't a figure of speech. And you know, the Lord knew that not only Nicodemus, but lots of people who hear about that are, ju- are, are going to be caused to stumble over it. That's why the Lord immediately says, don't be amazed about this now. Don't take this as being foolishness. Like, who could believe that? Every time I come to this, I think of an experience that I had many, many years ago when I was visiting some of our missionaries. I forget which ones, but my flights were routed through London, and so I was there for a day or two. I may have actually scheduled in a couple of extra days so that I could visit some church history sites, but one of the evenings that I was there, I was in a great large square in London called Leicester Square like a huge, huge park. And it's sort of a custom that anybody who has something to say is given the liberty essentially by everybody who lives there and by visitors to get up on a soapbox or a ladder or stand on a railing or something and he can just start talking right out loud and if anybody wants to gather around and listen to him, he can do it. And it's all right, it's lawful to do it. So I was going through the square and I heard this loud booming voice. And I looked around and there was a tall man several rungs up on a stepladder. And as I drew nearer I recognized that what he was doing was preaching the Bible. And he was preaching this. And there was a little crowd of people, a couple of dozen people or so, standing in front of him. Sometimes people would leave and other people would come, but it was a pretty constant group of 25, 30 people. And I was coming from behind him, so to try to stay inconspicuous but not join the crowd, I just kind of drifted off toward the side so he's like here, and they're there, and I can watch their faces. And there were a few people every once in a while that would kind of laugh and they'd they'd just kind of heckle him a little bit. But finally there was a group of them and they sort of peeled off together and some of them were just shaking their heads. And it was that. It was like, who can believe that? And Jesus knew that that would be our reaction when he started talking about a second literal birth and it's by the Holy Spirit. And I just want to encourage anyone listening to this today not to walk away. And don't shake your head like, who can accept that? The Lord really does want us to understand this. He wants us to accept it because it is the condition. Unless this takes place, you cannot see God's kingdom. And so what the Lord does is use an illustration. Let's read it. He said, let's take the wind. The wind blows where it wishes And you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from. And that's true. None of us know the ultimate source of the wind. Where did that come from? It wasn't here yesterday. Where did it come from today? People say, well, or you know, people who are involved in uh, the study of weather and so on, they can explain this in terms of the various atmospherical conditions of the day. But ultimately, the source of this, nobody can put his finger on it. You can't say, oh, it started today just over the border of Kentucky, right there. And you don't know, the Lord said, where it's going. That's the illustration. And the Lord said, so is everyone who is born of the spirit now the thing that is so helpful about that it's perfect illustration the thing that is so helpful about it is this very simple parallel between the wind and the spirit and what makes it perfect is that actually those are the same word and you're probably aware that the first 39 books of the Bible are for the most part, were written were, for the most part, originally written in Hebrew. And the books of our New Testament originally written in Greek. And in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for wind and the word for spirit is the same. It's the identical word. It's also the word for breath. Breath, wind, spirit. Uh, The Greek word is pneuma. It shows up in a word like our word pneumatic. Pneumatic tools. We bought a a wheelbarrow one time and it had a solid, well, let's see, I may have it backwards. It, It had a pneumatic tire. A pneumatic tire is a tire with air in it. And you know what happens to tires on wheelbarrows that have air in them after a couple of years? What happens? They're a headache. You have to pump them back up. So we replaced it with a hard rubber tire. It doesn't have any air in it. It's not pneumatic. This is that word, pneuma. And when the Lord said, what I'm talking about, even though it amazes when you first hear about it, really is. It's like the wind. You know about the wind you can't see it and you can't locate its origin or its destination but nobody would doubt that it's a real thing. You know it because you can hear it. You hear the sound of it. I was out Walking yesterday, late afternoon, I got out of my car, and a woman went by with a dog on a leash, and she called out to me, you're going to need a coat, the wind is up. And I didn't say, what's that? Or how do you know? I didn't dispute it just because I couldn't see it. I didn't have any question about it. I could hear it. I could hear it through the trees. In fact, I could see the leaves moving or the branches moving. No leaves on this time of year, but the branches moving. There was there definitely were the effects that were visible and audible. And that's what the Lord is saying. He's saying this is a real phenomenon, though it's invisible. And though there are things about it you can't explain. And folks, that is the case with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. When it happens to you, you don't see anything take place. And no one else is either. Like at your physical birth, it was visible. This is not a visible thing. But it is literal. Literal. It is actual. It is experiential. It's not just on paper. It's not just a thing in God's mind about you. It's something you experience. You experience a birth. But it is birth by the Spirit of God, and it's what makes you now a member of God's family. You're a member of a human family, but until this happens, you are not a member of God's family. You're not a child of God. It is birth that makes us a child of God, birth by the Spirit of God. Now, I want to take us back to our verse. The conversation went on, we've captured enough of it to work our way back to our original verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, if somebody said, all right, if this is an actuality, new birth, spiritual birth, how can I assure ensure that it's happened to me? I don't want to be a Nicodemus who's just a religious person who reads the Bible, who goes to church, who believes that Jesus came from God. I want to be sure I'm born again. How can I be sure? What do I need to do? John 3.16. Believe on God's Son. Believe when He said He came from God Believe what He said He came to do. Believe what He did do. Believe on the Son of God. And of course, those words, if that's what needs to be done, those words, in one form or another, we ought to find all the way through our Bible from that point on and we actually do. And I want to give you a little confirmation of that from one particular event in the life of the Apostle Paul, who, as you know, went all through his known region of the Roman Empire proclaiming this message. There was a day when he didn't believe it. He came to believe it. He came to believe on Jesus Christ. What did he say to people when they came to him like Nicodemus came to Jesus? Here's an example of this. This is taken from the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. Let's just, I'll give you the background of this. Paul and his traveling companion Silas had been preaching about Jesus and they were thrown into a prison for it in the town of Philippi in Greece. But about midnight they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. A dramatic moment. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened... He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Why would he do that? Because he's ultimately responsible. And probably when he is called to task for this, the prisoners got away. He could say, well, there's an earthquake. Doesn't matter. You were supposed to ensure that even with an earthquake, they don't get away. He's not only going to lose his life, but he's probably going to be tortured The authorities are probably going to treat him with great rigor. He's going to take his life to preempt, preclude that. And Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself, we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And now look at what he asked. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That is the question that that Nicodemus had under the surface, but he hadn't gotten out. What do I need to do to be sure I'm going to enter the kingdom of God? Philippian jailer, what do I need to do to be saved? And what did Paul answer him? He answered him, in the same words that we have in John 3.16. And here's the point of that, folks. Paul and the Lord Jesus both bring it to the same bottom line when it comes to us. On God's part, it takes an invisible work by His Spirit giving us spiritual birth. That's God's part. On our part, the thing that you could say brings that, that brings the Spirit of God to give us new birth is when we believe. When we believe on the Son of God. When we put our full faith and confidence in Him. Now, folks, there are a lot of people who would say I I mean I've done that. I actually I've believed on Jesus almost all my life. And yet I still a sermon like this, a passage like that still leaves me with some uneasiness. All right, I want at this point in the message to take us to the two things that really get in the way and that often mean that our belief is defective. And the Bible teaches that there is such a thing as a defective faith. It's not a saving faith. It stops short of what faith really is. What is faith? Faith is full trust and confidence. Faith is like getting on the elevator and all of you gets on the elevator, and you let the doors shut, and you're confident it will go up. When the Bible talks about faith, folks, it's talking about a faith that literally abandons itself to Jesus Christ. It, you could say, hurls itself into the arms of Christ. But there are two things that often get in the way of people who would say, I believe, I believe. But these actually are two things that mean they have not gotten fully on the elevator. And one of them is what I flashed up just a moment ago. It's sin that we really don't want to be saved from. And what we have to realize is that when the Lord Jesus came to earth, He came to be our Savior from sin. This is what the angel said to Joseph. These are the words of the angel to Joseph that we read at the Christmas season and that are read all over the world by all kinds of churches. And literally hundreds of millions of people hear these words. The angel said to Joseph, "'She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus,' Why? Why that name? Because he will save his people from their sins. The word Jesus means Savior. So call him Savior because he will save. When you refer to Jesus, you're just using the word Savior. And what is it from which he saves? He saves people from their sins. But what about if you have somebody and he does believe a great deal about Jesus, it's just that he has some sins he doesn't want to be saved from. That's a defective faith. That's holding out and holding back. That's not casting yourself entirely on the Savior to do with you whatever he wants to do to clean your life up, and and get rid of your sin. You got a lot of people, and they just want to be saved from perishing, but they don't want to be saved from the sin that results in their eternal death in hell. You have to be, folks, you have to be completely committed to this. That if you come to Jesus Christ that he gets to do with us what he wants to do. He is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. And he left heaven and he came to earth and he lived our life and he suffered on the cross bearing the penalty for our sins. That's what the Bible teaches that he was doing on the cross. He was accepting the punishment for our sins. But what about somebody says, well, I, like, you know, I do believe on him and I don't want to perish but I'm not willing for him to deal with me about some of my sins. Then he's no savior to you. He can't be. You're short-circuiting the whole point of his death on the cross. I once had a student at Bob Jones University, a girl who was a junior. She was in one of the choirs there. And she was a leader in the dorms. She was what was called a prayer captain, which meant that there were several rooms of other girls that were under sort of her spiritual oversight. And I had her in a Bible class, and she came in to see me because something in one of the classes had kind of unsettled her, like Nicodemus coming to the Lord by night. And she revealed to me that she was insecure about the matter of whether or not she really was truly saved. And I went all through the gospel with her and showed her passages. And she just wasn't seeming to quite get it. <clears throat> and there was a file cabinet that sat by my desk about, about yay high, four feet or so high. And I'm trying to think of an illustration and I picked up an object and I put it on top of the file cabinet and I sat back from it like this and I said, what you have to do, this is what faith is. Faith is like you right here and you leap, you jump right out and cast yourself on Jesus. And when you jump, you just leave everything behind. You leave, if, if you have to, you leave your ambitions behind. And in the midst of that, I said, you leave sin behind. And the girl stopped me. And she said, I don't suppose you could leave that part out, could you? the part about leaving your sin. And the answer to that is what? And thankfully that girl, that day the Lord really dealt with her. I don't know what the nature of the sin was that she was holding on to that she did not want Christ to deal with, but that day she gave the fullness of her heart to Christ. Now folks, please don't misunderstand this. The Bible is not teaching that I must quit sinning and then believe on Jesus and then I'll be born again and then I can enter the kingdom. The Bible does not teach quit sinning and believe on Jesus. It teaches believe on Jesus and he will save you from your sinning as well as save you from the penalty, your perishing. He does this. But what we have to do is have a will that comes to the point where we say, that's what I want. I never felt that way before. Today, I want Jesus to so deal with me that by His grace, I come in the end to be a person who's delivered from sinning, as well as from hell. Folks, it's a matter of the will. And you know, sometimes God brings people to that point because they just get sick of their sin. That can happen, for instance, to someone who's just enslaved to, to liquor. He's a drunk. And he just becomes completely, uh, he just loathes himself. But many, many times it isn't that God just makes people sick of their sin. He really wants them to come to realize that they are doing wrong and He wants them to yield their will about it simply because it's right to do the right thing. And to come to the Lord Jesus because God is right and I know I'm wrong and I'm doing wrong. And God is just and He will deal with my sin. So I, I want Jesus Christ to take the penalty for my sin. And whether you're sitting in this seat this morning and you just really feel sick of your sin or not, you've got to reckon with the fact you need to square up with the righteous law and demands of God and say in your heart, I have got to be a person who's delivered from this because I'm doing wrong. My lying, my stealing, before I came to Christ at the age of 12 I was a thief. You've got to come to the place where you're done with that. I got punished for it but I wasn't done with it. I just tried to get away with it. But the night I got saved I was done in my spirit with that. That's when God saved me. So folks that's one thing that gets in the way. That's like trying to get in the elevator, but you're keeping one foot outside. And you know what happens? Those doors won't shut and the elevator won't move. And it is that way in salvation. If you don't get completely on. And the other thing that gets in the way is something that is embedded in this particular verse and other verses in the New Testament. But I'll show you this one because it's a very good one for helping with it. This one essentially starts out where John 3.16 starts. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. it, it, It doesn't mean He just saves everybody, but He saves those who believe, All right. But not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness. And that is the other thing that gets in people's way and what's I think what's helpful for us to understand is this, that when they, get, when they begin to understand that they have to be willing for God to deliver them from all their sin, they can naturally start thinking, all right, I need to start doing deeds, good deeds of righteousness. And Remember I said, no, no, God isn't saying to you, stop sinning and then believe this does get in the way. You have people, and it's like, I want to stop sinning. I'm willing for God to deal with me about my sin, and now I'm going to do my very best to do deeds of righteousness. People like Martin Luther, this is what he attempted to do. And the Bible is very, very clear that this also is uh, it, it is one of the two major things that get in the way and short-circuit Christ saving us. It's our deeds that we have done in righteousness. And a classic passage to help us with this. Most Christian people have memorized this passage. This is in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. These are people at the ancient city of Ephesus who had truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. They were believers. And Paul's talking to them about what happened to them. And he says, you've been saved. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if you left this place this morning and you could save yourself and God would save you? By grace, you were saved. Today, through faith, through belief in Jesus Christ. And that wasn't even of yourselves. It was all a gift of God. But here are the important words for us. Not as a result of works. That's what the previous passage said. Not deeds of righteousness we have done. It's not as a result of works. In fact, this is what the Bible says about our deeds of righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 is a really important verse. Let's say you've been faithful in church all your life. Let's say you've always said your prayers. You were baptized as an infant. You went through confirmation at the age of 12. You are involved in community projects to try to take care of homeless people. To give meals to people who are out of work. Deeds of righteousness. From God's viewpoint, it's not that he is unappreciative of good you do. But if you're talking about good that you might try to offer to him so he would receive you into his presence forever in heaven, God has to say to us, those are actually like filthy rags. And you know what, folks, that just, on one level, I can really understand that. If my hands are soiled and I pick up something that is spotless and pristine in its cleanliness and I take that, And I even try to do something good for somebody else. You know, wash their face off with it. My dirty hands soiled that cloth. That's the way with everything we do as sinners when it comes to the sight of God and the acceptance of God. We soil everything we touch because we are sinful people. That's why the Bible says this has all got to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And so, when it comes to those deeds, God says, No, this is what He says. My salvation is a total gift. When my wife was talking with the older man, a pastor, a Christian leader who led her to Christ, she, was, she just was having real trouble getting this. And finally, He took, I think, a penny and wrapped it up in a little piece of paper. And held it out to her and said, look, here's a present. What would you have to do to have it? And she's just sitting there like, this is too good to be true. I mean, it's too simple to be true. And he just keeps pressing her. And finally she just says, take it. And he says, that's right. That is it. That is the whole salvation. It's a gift from God. And it's not of works, because look at the end of that first verse, folks so nobody will boast. There's not going to be an anybody in heaven who thinks of himself as any better than anybody who perished and went to hell. People are not going to be walking around in heaven saying, you know, I could have gone to hell, but I, was a lot, I, I did a lot more works than those people who went to hell. No, no. Nobody's going to boast in heaven. Their whole boast is going to be in Christ. Christ did it all. It has to be all Christ. It's a gift from God. Praise God. That's why God gets all the glory. But dear people, these are the two things that get in the way. And for many of us who were raised in Christian homes, like I was raised in a Christian home, it's one of these two things that keeps the elevator doors from closing and the elevator from working and taking you up. You're standing looking at it. If somebody said, do you believe in the elevator? You'd say, sure. Do you believe that elevator will take people up? You say, sure. You've noticed a lot of other people in the church and most of you, you have no question about it. They're Christians. They're saved. But you're standing there. You believe on one level. But when you hear a sermon like this and you really begin to think about the issue, am I now, am I really a child of God? The answer then is you'd have to be born again. What would I have to do to be born again? You'd have to really believe. Well I have believed but did you believe with one foot outside the elevator door? If you try even to put, you know, have one foot in, I'm a Christian but you don't want God to really deal with you about your sin or I'm a Christian and you don't really want to accept the position of being like John Wesley said, amazing grace that saved a what? A wretch like me. You don't want to be a wretch. You don't want to be a wretch in your own eyes. You don't want to be a wretch in anybody else's eyes. You don't want to admit that. You want everybody to think in terms of how good you are, how how, uh, honorable you are, how good your social manners are, your social graces, how intelligent you are, how gifted you are. Forget all that. Take God's side against yourself. God says you're a poor, unworthy, wretched, miserable sinner, and you're going to perish. You need Christ. Christ alone. And if you will put both feet all your sin and all of your self-righteousness and cast it all on Christ, the doors will close. And the Spirit of God will do the miracle. And you will be born again. And you won't perish. You will possess eternal life. Would you bow your heads with me, please, in prayer this morning? Now, every person here... really knows whether you have done this or not. I don't think there can be any question about that. You know whether you've abandoned everything to Jesus Christ. No reserve, nothing held back. Here I am, here's my life, miserable as it is, needy as it is, Lord Jesus, save me. if that has not been your spirit if this has not characterized your life then it's highly doubtful that you ever have experienced the new birth because there was never a beginning to this there was never a beginning point at which you had this spirit and with this spirit you cast yourself on the Lord. Have you done that? Are you born again? One of the clearest evidences of that is just like the wind, you can hear the sound. And the Bible is so clear that there are evidences that start to show up in people's lives. So you'll know. We're going to pray together and then just in a moment we're going to sing together. When we sing it's going to be important that those words are clear to us and that we find in our hearts that it's exactly what we want to say. Because it's true about me. True about you. But as we pray together right now would you do this? Would you please ask the Lord That if you are not truly born again, that he would help you to realize it. Are you willing to do that? If you're a little confused and still uncertain this morning, you can at least pray that prayer. You can pray, Lord, if I'm not truly born again, I want you to help me realize that. And if you are clear this morning that you need to be born again, then what does God want you to do right now this morning? What's He want you to do? He wants you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I could put it this way, with both your feet. He wants you to cast yourself entirely into the care of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be your Savior. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We pray today and ask that you truly would help every person in this room and every person who is watching or listening to this to truly recognize himself or herself and to know whether or not he or whether she is truly born again. Would you please help each of us to know? And then our Father, we pray for any of those who realize that they have never been born of the Spirit. Gracious Lord, would you help them today to be willing to be saved from all their sin and to be willing to admit that all of their goodness is all soiled in your presence And help them to believe entirely on Jesus Christ, we pray. And we ask this in His precious name, Amen. The number we're going to sing together is, like John 3.16, one of the most familiar hymns known to people all over the world. It's 247 in our hymn book, Amazing Grace. I was sharing with folks this last Thursday at the memorial service for Ellen Doyle, one of our missionaries, that many people who know the words of this song and they know the tune misunderstand what Newton was talking about when he talked about amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And they're aware of the fact that he had been a slave dealer and actually captained Two different slave vessels in the 19th century. They think that they're taught that him is talking about that, that God finally saved me from being involved in such a wretched, wicked, wrong commerce. Well, God did save him from that, but that isn't primarily what he's talking about. He's talking about being saved from sin and saved from being. Punished for his sin that saved a wretch like me I once was lost now I'm found I was blind to myself and my need for Christ now I see is that your case folks if you've been born again this is exactly your understanding that's one of the ways you know it's happened because everything is cleared up the way you see them You see yourself the way God saw you. You see your past the way God saw it. That was wretched. You see yourself now as found, as Christ. That's the consequence of the invisible work of the Spirit of God. And if these words are not something that with all of your heart you could sing, you could actually sing these before the throne of God someday. And know that God would not say to you, you're singing in hypocrisy. That was never true of you. You are confident I can sing this amazing grace of God that saved a wretch like me. Hallelujah. That's one of the ways you know you've been born again. The genuineness of of being able to sing things like this in the presence of God. We're going to sing together the first two stanzas, and then we're going to recite together the next three and sing the sixth stanza. And the important thing this morning is for you to listen to the words, even as you sing or recite, and for you to be certain. And if you're not, even as we sing right now, in your heart, Cast yourself in belief on Christ. Do it right there in your seat. Do it now, this morning, this hour, this minute. Believe. Get on the elevator. Tell God you're getting on. Tell Him to shut the doors and save you for Jesus' sake. Let's stand together and sing. Christian. Once you believe, the last stanza ended with, the hour I first believed. If you'll believe right now, then this is what your life is going to be and what you're going to be able to testify to. Let's read it. Stanza three. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. To has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Now this is what is going to happen when people perish. Stanza 5. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine but God who called me here below will be forever mine. That's eternal life. Let's sing stanza six. states. One, we leave as people who are born again and we know we are. Two, we leave as people who heard this message and we still have some question. If that's the case with you, would you please talk to someone? Talk to a person who invited you today. Talk to one of the men at the door to have a little package with gospel material. Talk to me after the service. Talk to someone. Let's follow up. Let's get help. Or you leave today as someone and you're just shaking your head like that can't be. I don't believe it and I don't want to hear it. My friend you're lost. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. May the Lord help you today. We're dismissed.